Well, good morning. Good to be here with you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at chapter 3, verses 12 to 18 today. Welcome to those of you who are watching online with us here today. It's always good to be gathered as the Lord's Church, and using common grace like the internet to be able to do that is a real blessing. So we're glad that you're with us here this morning. Last week, Mark spoke from verses 1 through 11, and he talked about the new covenant. And he contrasted the new covenant with the old covenant. But this new covenant is awesome, isn't it? It transforms our hearts. It's empowered by the Spirit. And it reveals God's glory so much more than the old covenant ever could. You know, God has a wonderful plan, doesn't he? God has a plan of redemption. For people who could not redeem themselves, he devised a plan to save us. He planned this redemption, and Christ procures it for us through his atoning death on the cross. And the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts and to our lives. And today, in our text, Paul shows us how the Holy Spirit works in the new covenant, both to save us, but also to change us, to bring us into God's presence, and to change us into the image of Christ. And so Jack Kaler is going to come now and read to us 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 18. Since we have such hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites may not gaze at the outcome of what is being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remained unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this, yes, to this day, Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit pray. Father, as we come to your word, we trust that you, through your spirit, are going to speak to our hearts and to our minds. We trust that you are going to help us see your son, Jesus Christ, more clearly here this morning so that we can worship him, adore him, extol him in all his glories. And we pray that you would be at work mightily now through your spirit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. That last verse that Jack just read, verse 18, is actually going to be the main focus of this message this morning. Let me repeat it to you. It says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, there's a lot in this verse, but let me just tell you, this verse has had a transforming effect on my life. This is one of those life verses. And I was so grateful that Mark asked uh, me to be able to speak from this passage here today because it changed my understanding of the Christian life. You're like, how did that happen? Talking about veils and transformation and all this stuff. How did that happen? 
Well, I use this verse all the time in my own life. I use it when I uh, share uh, my faith with others and talk about sin and how God changes us through Christ, how he forgives us. Um, I, I use this verse all the time, even though it's a little bit complex, but it is rich in meaning. You see, in my early life, before I was a Christian, I used to think that if you just worked hard and if you were a good person, that God would accept you. And primarily my rationale was, I wasn't as bad as my brothers. (laughs) Or I wasn't as bad as the other kids in class, right? And so I just thought, as long as I'm a little bit ahead of everybody else, I'm good. And God's going to like me and accept me. But sadly, I didn't just walk away from the Lord or an understanding of the Lord or even attending church. I actually ran away. I took off. When I started to see what the world could offer, how much joy and pleasure and fun I could have just living my own life and being the king and the ruler of my own world, I thought, that is for me. I want that. I wanted everything that the world offered. And I said, yeah, I'm going to be good at this too. I'm going to get as much as I can. It's kind of like trick-or-treating on Halloween. You get that big old pillowcase and you literally run from house to house so you can get as much candy in that bag, right? That's how I was with the world and with sin. I just had a big bag and I was just going to fill it all up because that bag had all the goodies in it. It's what the world said was going to make me happy. The problem is the goodie bag isn't filled with good candy the goodie bag is filled with rotten fruit. It's like you go around life and people just throw rotten bananas and apples into your bag. And somehow what you thought was going to be a delight and a feast turns out to be something that makes your stomach churn. And that's how I lived my life. I ran away from the Lord. And sin, my sin was a barrier now between my relationship with God. It was the problem, the big problem. And it was a problem that was so big that I could not overcome that problem on my own, even when I tried to be a good person. Very shortly thereafter, because of my allegiance to sin, I would just grow farther and farther away from God. But God in his kindness looked down upon me and had mercy. And he said, I want you to be with me, and he saved me. And faithful people in my life, like my brother David and my parents, they they preached the gospel to me. And even though I was hard-hearted and I didn't want to hear it and I pushed them away and I called them Jesus freaks and everything else, they loved me. Not only with words and they shared the gospel with me, but they were patient with me. And they prayed for me. And they came alongside me after I would come in after a long weekend and sort of the the muck and mire of the world and kind of hung over and everything else. They still loved me. They demonstrated the love of Christ to me. They demonstrated the transforming power of the Spirit of God in the way that they loved a wayward sinner who wanted nothing to do with God. And so God saved me. But when I became a Christian, I didn't know what it actually meant to live like a Christian. I didn't understand the connection from, hey, I'm saved to now I'm going to live like a Christian. It was a, it was a huge mystery for me. I didn't quite understand it. What does it look like to follow Jesus? How do I become like him? People would say, you're going to be transformed into his image. I'm like, what does that mean? What does God do in this process? 
what am I supposed to do in this process? What's the role of the Holy Spirit? I never quite got that at all. And this frustrated me. When I first became a Christian when I was 25, I was zealous, but I didn't have a lot of knowledge. I was eager, but I was a bit wayward because I didn't know exactly what path to go on. Now, I don't know about some of you, but you might be on that journey too, or maybe you've been on that journey. And I hope this resonates in your hearts because there's a good ending to this story. God is faithful. And even though I was frustrated and I struggled with the remaining sin in my life, my pride, my selfishness, I knew it wasn't going to work if I just tried harder. And I knew I was missing something. And then this verse came along. Verse 18 unlocked the big mystery for me of what it actually looks like to grow as a Christian and to become like Christ. This verse gave me a new understanding of how God, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, works in me to become like Jesus. And this understanding now, it gives me peace, it gives me joy, oh, and it gives me hope that God is going to keep doing a good work in me through His Spirit as I cooperate with Him. And as the Spirit works in our lives, we're going to look at two things in our passage today, verses 12 to 18. Just two very simple points that we learn from this text. One is turn to the Lord. And the second one is behold the glory of Christ. Turn to the Lord. Behold the glory of Christ. Turn to the Lord and behold the glory of Christ. This is the essence of what it's going to look like to live out the Christian life. It's what gets you into the Christian life right? Getting access to God, turning to the Lord. But then how do we stay there? How do we remain in this goodness? And how do we not just remain, but how do we actually grow? Well, Scripture says we behold the glory of the Lord, and that's how we're going to be transformed. So what does that mean? This passage here today is rich in meaning. The first point here, and this is really the first step, If you're thinking about what it's going to look like to change and how you're going to grow, you you can't get ahead of yourself. You have to first turn to the Lord. And that's what verses 12 to 17 are all about. You see, Paul was explaining the contrast between the difference of an old covenant and a new covenant. And under the old covenant, the Israelites, they had an ongoing problem, very similar to my problem. They had a problem with sin. They kept turning away from God over and over and over again. And the lingering question throughout all of Israel's history was, how is this sinful people ever going to live permanently with a holy God? How's that going to work? God is holy. He's not going to just let sin just envelop him and be all around him. No, it doesn't work that way. And so the Lord, and we read this throughout the Old Testament, the Lord gave specific instructions for how the Israelites were supposed to approach him. He gave elaborate instructions. Uh, instructions about the tabernacle where God would dwell by his spirit in the tabernacle. But there were all kinds of rules and regulations. It wasn't just free access. Actually, there's only one person one time a year could go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the people. But the minute he walked out of that Holy of Holies, guess what? The registry was already getting filled up with more sins that had to be forgiven. 
And it was ongoing and it was perpetual and year after year and high priest after high priest, somebody had to keep going in there and keep making atonement for all the sins. But even then, even with all the sacrifices of the blood of the bulls and the goats, it wasn't going to permanently wash away or wipe away the sins. The problem of sin remained. And the Lord gave, as I said, specific instructions for how the people were to dwell with him. But they kept turning away from him. You see, they would run away from God just like I ran away from God. We see this when God gave the law on Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain. The lightning is going and the clouds are going and there's fire all over the place. And Moses is up there and he comes down. And what were the people doing while he was up there? Making a golden calf. Already committing idolatry. While Moses was up there getting the law from the Lord after the Lord had taken them out of bondage and brought them into safety. So quick are we to turn from the Lord. So quick are we to say, I'm just going to go my own way. Friends, we can see ourselves a lot in the Israelites. So Paul illustrates the problem of the, uh, of the Israelites in our text today and under the Old Covenant by using the reference to a veil, but he uses it in two different ways. Let me explain the two ways to you. The first veil we see in verse 13 where Moses, who would put a veil over his face, okay, so a veil, just a regular old veil, just something that covers your face, probably enough see-through for him to be able to see where he was going. It doesn't say it was a total blackout, but he had a veil over his face. And this is a reference to Exodus chapter 34, to the second time that Moses went up the mountain. You see, remember what happened the first time he went down the mountain and he, and he saw them committing all this idolatry? Remember what happened? What happened to the Ten Commandments? Whoosh, broken. Thrown down. So Moses had to go back up the mountain again and meet with God for another 40 days. And he meets with God up there and God writes these commandments on these tablets. And Moses was up there and when he comes down, it says in Scripture in Exodus 34 that the skin of his face was shining. So imagine that. He's up there, and the cloud of God's presence is up on the mountain, and the law is being written on these tablets. And after spending time with God, in effect, the glory of God was now shining off Moses' face. That's like amazing. You're like in the presence of God. All of a sudden, this shining glory was coming out of him. And you would think, wow, the people would say, this is awesome. This is fantastic. But you know what it says in Exodus 34? It says that they were afraid of him. Why? Because their sinful hearts were still sinful. And they knew that that glory represented the holy God. And they were not holy. And so he came down after speaking with God and when he would speak with them, he would put a veil over his face. For they were not ready to be in the presence of God. No, they were afraid of him. And Moses put this veil over his face as a symbol of the barrier between man and God because of sin. Look at verse 13. Because Paul gives us a little bit more explanation that's not said in Exodus 34, but it's how he interprets what was going on. He says, Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What does he mean by that? 
Well, he means that this veil, this barrier, symbolized that someday the old covenant of the law would be replaced. It was just temporary. The glory of God wasn't going to go away, but there was a veil between man and God, and that veil represented the temporary nature of the old covenant. It was going to have to be done away with at some point so that people could be in God's presence and behold his glory and reflect his glory. But Paul goes on and talks about a second veil, and he uses veil but in a different way, a different, uses this metaphor in a different way. He refers to it being over the Israelites' hearts. So the first one is in front of their face. The second one is over their hearts. What's he mean by that? Well, again, it's a barrier. Look at verse 14. See how this barrier works. It says, but their minds were hardened, meaning the Israelites. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, reading the old covenant laws, that same veil remains unlifted. In other words, they were never going to be saved by trying to keep the old covenant laws because they had sinful hearts, hardened minds. It was never going to work in the long run for them. Yes, the law is good and it reveals God's character. It reveals how we are supposed to live. But there's a tragic effect on the, for us about the law. And that is as we look at it intently, we realize how far we fall short of it. The chasm between us and God gets bigger and bigger and bigger. This is why sometimes when people read their Bibles, they get discouraged. Because they look at the law and they go, but I'm not doing the law. They go, I think I better close my Bible. I better not read this thing anymore. It makes me feel bad. But they're missing the point. You see, the law was there to help us see our need for a Savior. And in God's Word, we see God's gracious disposition to provide a Savior. You see, He does for us what we could not do for ourselves. Oh, friends, but there was a veil over their hearts. The Israelites chose to live in unbelief and in sin and rebellion against God. Their minds were hardened. That word hardened is like petrified. You know, like petrified wood and it's real hard. That's what our hearts are like. When we go our own way, when we choose not to live under God's rule and reign, our hearts are hard. Something needs to change. I've become well acquainted with hearts over the last 28 years. My daughter has heart conditions, and so we talk to a lot of cardiologists. And I assure you, one of the greatest things that we ever hear is the thumping of her beating heart because it's alive. Imagine the sadness when you go into a cardiologist and the sound is nothing. It's death. It's hardness of heart. So a veil was over their hearts. This veil represents their minds that were hardened. And this veil, it signifies once again the separation between God and man because of sin. Paul is commenting here saying, and for the Israelites and for the Jewish people, even after Jesus came, the promised Messiah, the sin bearer, the deliverer, the savior of the world, they still didn't believe. 
And even after Jesus came in fulfillment of the promises of God, it says a veil lies over their hearts. It was still there. The barrier, and that's why they weren't believing, because there was a veil over their hearts. The problem of sin remained. But Paul contrasts this. He speaks confidently about the new covenant. And he was a minister of this new covenant. The new covenant that brings life and not death. Look at verse 12. It says this. It says, since we have such a hope, a hope in the gospel, everything that had come before that, we have such a hope, we are very bold. Bold meaning what? Bold to share this good news. He wasn't going to shrink back. He wasn't going to let uh, some things that were being said about his character and his personhood get in the way of him sharing the gospel. No, this news was so great, he was going to be bold no matter what. Because these were the words, the gospel words, that were going to bring life and not death. So in contrast to the old covenant, the barrier of unbelief that separates people from the Lord is taken away. How? Look in verse 14. It's through Christ. Paul understood that Jesus enables the new covenant promise of God to be removed. This is, I mean, to be fulfilled. This is how the veil is removed. And if you're not familiar with this new covenant language, I'll tell you two references. One is uh, Ezekiel 36, and the other is Jeremiah 31. These were Old Testament prophets that predicted a new covenant that was to come. You see, God knew that this old covenant was going to bring death and heartache and destruction. It was going to leave people needing and wanting something more so that they could be reconciled to God. And so these prophets, way ahead of time, they predicted that a new covenant would come. God was going to do something new and something different to fix the problem that we couldn't fix ourselves. Let me read to you the verses in Jeremiah 31, the verses 31 to 34, and they'll be on the screen here. And just listen to this language, because this is the kind of stuff that Paul had swirling around in his mind. He says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, that old covenant, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Oh, and here are some sweet words. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Two questions. How will God forgive their iniquity? How can he remember their sin no more? This is the holy God. He can't just overlook sin. He has to be just. But he is both just and the justifier in and through the work of his son. You see, the answer is Jesus Christ. This is how our sins are forgiven. This is how we are reconciled back to God. This is what gains us entrance into the presence of God. The death of Christ pays the penalty for our sin and the righteousness of Christ gains us access into his holy presence. 
Friends, this is great news. This is the essence of the new covenant that brings us into a right relationship with God. And how is it received? By works? Do we just try harder? Going back to my story, am I supposed to just try hard when I realize that, you know, I'm not right with God? No, I, I tried to be a good person, but I could never do it. No, I had to turn to somebody who could do it for me. And that's what our text says today. Look at verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. How's that veil over your heart going to get removed? Self-effort? Trying harder? No, that veil is going to be removed when you turn to the Lord. And that turning to the Lord is repentance language. You know what repentance is? Repentance means you're sort of going in one direction, following something like this, going like, like that, right? Repentance says you're going to turn. It's a turning. But here's the catch. You don't just turn this way and go down some other idolatrous path. Or you don't just turn, you know, maybe over this way and go down some other crazy path. There's a destination to where you're supposed to turn. You see, you turn away from your sin, but you turn to the Lord. That's really important that you see that those two things are together. It's not just, hey, I'm going to stop sinning. It's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a declaration that, Lord, I don't want to keep sinning, but I am going to turn to you. This is the essence of it. This is what makes it come alive. Because it's the Lord who can actually help us. It's the Lord who will be with us. You see, the Spirit works within us. He unveils our hearts so that we can turn to the Lord. Look at verse 17. This is exactly how you can just see the logic and how Paul's thinking about this. He says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Freedom. Don't we want freedom? Who likes to live under the burden and the curse of the law that you can never satisfy? It is drudgery. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you can just get that picture of somebody on this long journey with this big pack on their back, filling it with more and more suffering. You're just getting way down more and more as you go, and it's miserable. But when one turns to the Lord, those straps are cut, and the burden falls off, and you stand there in the presence of God, knowing that you've been redeemed. Friends, there is freedom freedom from the law, freedom from the punishment we deserve, freedom to have a new life in Christ. This is great news. Simple application, share it with somebody. Tell somebody about this great news. I mean, this will change people's lives, not just now, but for all eternity. So now let's look at verse 18. We turn to the Lord, then what? That was my predicament. Now what? What does this actually look like to follow the Lord? God's redemptive plan, we know in Scripture, is that we are to be conformed into the image of His Son, which is what it says in Romans 8. And this means we need to be changed, transformed. It's the word metamorphosis. It's, it's when something starts as immature and grows to maturity. That's what's supposed to happen when we come to the Lord. When we turn to the Lord, it's not like, okay, well, that's it. Okay, we're all done. Now God just, you know, somehow is going to clean us up and bring us into heaven someday. No. We're supposed to change. 
The other extreme is to say, okay, well, I'm in the kingdom, and now I guess, you know, God's over there, but now I just got to do all this stuff, and I got to follow those laws again, and somehow, by the Spirit, it's all going to work out. No, that that doesn't work either. Look at verse 18 again. It says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So how do we change? What does it look like? Well, let's look just slowly for a moment at the words in this verse. He says, we all. What does he mean by that? He says, everyone who is part of this new covenant, Paul, including all those who were with him and all those who were reading this letter that had turned to the Lord, they all were going to be able to participate in this with an unveiled face, just like Moses You see, the thing with Moses uh, that was so interesting is that when he came down the mountain and met with the people, he ended up putting a veil over his face. But when he was in the presence of God, what did he do? He lifted the veil up. Why? Because he was enjoying being in the presence of God. And what Paul's saying right here, that we all, with unveiled face, means that if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have access to God all the time, no barrier. No veil. No veil over your eyes, no veil over your heart. You are in the presence of God by His Spirit. And friends, that should excite us. That should delight us. That should give us so much encouragement for the Christian life because we know that we have the presence of God with us wherever we go, at any time, no matter what trial, no matter what circumstance, we are with Him. With an unveiled face, we behold the glory of the Lord. What does that mean? Who's He talking about? Is it just behold God's glory or the Spirit's glory? Mark's going to speak next week on chapter 4, and he's going to highlight in verses 4 and 6 that Jesus is not only the image of God, Jesus is the glory of God. And so what Paul means here in this passage is that as we behold the glory of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Savior of the world, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, as we behold His glory. Remember what I said about repentance, how we turn from something to something? Well, now we turn and we gaze at the glory of Jesus Christ. This is what transformation is going to look like. And we are going to be transformed. We're going to be changed. It's that same word, transform, that's used in Romans 12 too, that talks about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Well, this is the transformation of our lives. We don't have to be the same people anymore because God's Spirit dwells within us. He's changing us. He's molding us. He's shaping us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. You see, someday we'll be with God in heaven for all time. That's when we're glorified. Right now we're being sanctified. That means set apart by God for His good purposes. And it also means that progressively God is at work changing us moment by moment little bit by little bit, so that we can become more like his son. And that's what we are being transformed into, into the same image. 
into the image of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is amazing. Chapter 5, he's going to talk about how we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Why? Because we're the image bearers. Not just that we were created in his image, but now we're the glory bearers too. You see, our faces should shine as well, metaphorically. The work of Christ in us by the Spirit should cause such change in us that as people encounter us, they should say something's different about these people. Paul uses a different metaphor when he says, we are the aroma of Christ. It's the same thing. He's just using different metaphors. He's trying to describe the indescribable. He's trying to say, listen, when God is at work in you, you're going to be so changed. You're going to smell different. You're going to look different spiritually. Why? Because God is at work in you and the way you smell and the way you look spiritually is what God uses to draw people to himself and to authenticate the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do we behold the glory of the Lord? How do we behold the glory of Christ? What, what does that actually mean? Like, it, I, I don't know. As I was on this journey trying to figure out how to apply these verses, that's where I got. Okay, so how do I apply this? What does it look like to behold the glory of Jesus Christ? I, I know that God's glory is all around us. We know in Psalm 19 it says that the heavens declare his glory, but that's not the particular glory that's being referenced here in this passage. The glory here is specifically the person of Jesus Christ. His glory. We're to behold His glory. And I just have three simple ways that we can apply this in our lives and we can try to cultivate more beholding in our lives. Because look, the reality is beholding is becoming. That's what this verse says. The more you behold Him, the more you'll become like Him. Three ways. One, through a life-giving, ongoing personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't just be a Christian without Christ. There's no such thing. That's just dead moralism. And so if you've put your faith and trust in Christ, if you've turned to the Lord, well, the way of the Christian is you keep beholding the glory of the Lord. It's an ongoing life-giving relationship. It's not something that we just procure at the beginning and then we just leave. No, it's an ongoing relationship. And how do we do this? It's through this personal relationship with Jesus. It's the times we spend with him in his word and in prayer. We see and savor Jesus Christ, as John Piper so wonderfully says, to know him and to love him, to listen to him so that we can obey him and become like him. This is how we change, friends. The world tells us a very different way to live, but when we open the words of scripture and see Jesus Christ in there, we know something very different. How absurd would it be if I told you, I want you to be like somebody, but I'm never going to tell you what they're like? God tells us he wants us to be like his son. So how absurd would it be if we never actually found out who he was, what he did, what he loves, what he likes, what he hates? So the first one is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Second, through fellowship with other believers. You might scratch your head and say, well, how do we know that? Well, let me just make the case for you very simply. God's spirit resides in each person who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Using the family metaphor, the Bible calls us brothers and sisters in Christ. People for whom Christ died. And you know what we all have in common? The spirit of Christ dwelling within us. 
And so when we gather together, just two of us to pray together, or ten of us in a small group, when we gather together as God's people, guess who's there with us? God. He's in our midst. He's in our presence. And what happens when we gather together with other believers? We start to realize that God's at work in their lives too. And we start to see how God's glory is reflected in their lives as well. This is how we learn from each other. This is why we encourage one another. This is why we link arms with one another. Because united as the people of God, we're able to reflect the radiance and the glory of God and more majesty and more glory. Friends, this is why in Hebrews it says, don't neglect the fellowship. Don't neglect meeting together. One of the reasons why is because this is when we have a beholding of the glory of the Lord and we see it in each other's lives because His Spirit is at work within us. And third, and I'll end here, we see the glory of the Lord through the gathering of the church. When we gather together here corporately, this is an awesome moment. This is a little foretaste of heaven. You know what we're going to do in heaven? We're going to sing. We're going to be around the throne of God. There's going to be an object of our worship, the Lamb of God, slain for us. We're going to worship together. We're going to have fellowship together. And you know what's really cool? We're going to be from every nation, tongue, and tribe. So just as a microcosm of our small group fellowships, well, when we gather together as God's church, it's expanded even more. It's a bigger taste, a better taste. It gives us a longing for more. More glory. Lord, give me more glory. More glory. And so as we join together online and in person as the people of God, we remember that Christ is the head of the church. That's how we see his glory. This is his church. We're part of it by his spirit. And when we gather together to watch baptisms and to partake of the Lord's Supper together, to sing corporately as the body of Christ, it's just another way that we get to behold the glory of the Lord. And especially then as we hear God's word preached to us, that word that's living and active, that speaks to our hearts. So we behold this glory privately. We behold it in fellowship. We behold it as the gathered church. And the Spirit changes us from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude this time of speaking from your word, I pray that we would just pause for a moment. Think and reflect for a moment of what you have done for us in and through your son, Jesus Christ who died on a cross for our sins so that we who were rebellious, wayward children could be redeemed and recovered and brought back into your family. We thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit that unveils and works to soften our hearts so that through the work of Christ that veil can be lifted. We thank you for the ongoing ministry of the Spirit because we know now that as we behold the glory of the Lord, we will be transformed. Yes, we are to work out our salvation. Yes, we are called to do things, but we never do that apart from you. And that's the first thing that we must get right, is that to live life with you means that we must behold the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to do that. Help us to be a people who are faithful to do that so that we could be transformed and bring you glory with our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.